I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Speeding up that feedback loop, having instantaneous knowledge. Nope, not quite right. I'm going to do it this way. Oh, yeah, that's better. And then they go on there. Enormously valuable. Um, versus, you know, the skill acquisition equivalent of stumbling around in the dark without a flashlight. Like, you're going to bump into all of the walls and furniture you just you don't have it you don't have a choice like knowing what you're trying to do and being able to self-correct once you get to that step everything is easier josh kaufman is the best-selling author of books on business entrepreneurship skill acquisition productivity creativity applied psychology and practical wisdom his unique multidisciplinary approach to business mastery and rapid skill acquisition has helped millions of readers from around the world learn essential concepts and skills on their own terms his best-selling book the personal mba 10th anniversary edition is out now Hey, it's Sean, and before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching, so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. For all the coffee lovers out there, listen up. I'm crazy about the coffee I fuel my body with, and that's why I'm always grabbing a bottle of super coffee from Key to Life. Super Coffee has something to satisfy every coffee drinker's needs. Check out their brand new pods for the quick pick-me-up that are filled with vitamins and antioxidants. Before every podcast, I fill up on their Super Espresso, and my wife and I are borderline obsessed with their plant-based Coconut Mocha Super Coffee Cold Brew, which has 10 grams of protein, no added sugar, and is keto-friendly. I love the coffee and the three brothers so much that started this company. That's why I became an early investor. There's a reason they just got ranked number 18 on Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies. So if you want to check out what they've got going on, head to drinksupercoffee.com and see what everyone's talking about. Josh, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? John, it's great to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me. Oh, no. And anytime I get to talk to someone that I've already learned a lot from, it's one of those things that just really stimulates me. And I know you're a huge fan and believer of cognitive tools and mental models as just a guide to better thinking. And we're always looking for better ways to think. So I'm just wondering, what made you start diving into cognitive tools and mental models in the first place? Uh, the original interest or, or impulse was that I wanted to learn more about business. I wanted to get better at my job. I wanted to make sure it was just getting out of college, starting at the beginning of my career. And uh, I had this big job and I wanted to do a good job. And, and so a lot of the early research was um, I, I had a business undergrad and it was interesting, but I felt that it wasn't complete in a sense. Like I, I, I had this, the, the very distinct experience of, of going through this entire program and realizing that never once was there an attempt to define what businesses are and how they work at some fundamental level. It's like everybody just assumes like, 
businesses are things that you create or places you work to go get money. And of course, everybody knows what they are, but, but it really, it wasn't satisfying. Like I, I didn't feel like I had a good working fundamental knowledge. Like what, what makes a huge business and the smallest garage startup that is, is just like taking its first steps towards making something like, what do the two of those things have in common? What makes a business a business? And so um, at that time, I, I was doing a lot of reading, doing a lot of research, trying to, to figure out the answer to this question. And I came across uh, a gentleman by the name of Charlie Munger, who most people probably haven't heard his name, don't know who he is. Um, they are aware of his business partner, whose name is Warren Buffett and is one of the wealthiest people in the world. And one of the reasons Warren Buffett is as wealthy as he is, is because specifically he works with, he worked with Charlie Munger. And so Charlie has, has written and has given speeches pretty extensively about how he thinks about business. And he, he talks about this idea of business mental models, having these fundamental concepts in your brain so that when you are looking at a business, in his case, as an investor, or when you are working in a business as either an employee or starting your own thing as an entrepreneur, having these ideas in your head makes it much, much easier to figure out what you should do, figure out the order in which you should do it, and figure out all of the things that you should spend your time on versus all of the things that you can safely ignore. And so for me, when I, when I came across this, like, okay, this, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I want. Unfortunately, uh, two, th two things. Um, one is nobody had ever put together a collection of all of the important mental models of business at large together in the same place. I was expecting that, you know, some business professor 50 or 60 years ago had said, had like written some obscure book somewhere. It's like, here's business, yeah. here's what you need to do. <laughs> and I went looking for that thing and it didn't exist. Uh, the closest thing that existed was um, a biography of Charlie Munger where he talks about a little of this stuff and a few books around Charlie Munger in terms of talking about mental models as a concept, why they're important. But the emphasis was on investing. Mm -hmm. It was making capital allocation decisions. Where do you put money? Why? Not as a business operator, not as an entrepreneur. And so I decided that um, in my spare time, as I was working this at the time, big corporate job, I was going to do my own reading and do my own research and put together this compendium of everything you need to know about business. Uh, assuming you have no experience, you have no knowledge, you have no prior experience, like this is what you need to know. And so that's what the personal MBA came to be over over a series of a couple of years. No, I love it. It's so funny. You you mentioned Munger and any longtime listeners know my, my obsession with Munger and, and his frameworks. And I came onto your work because of his and exactly what you just identified there. There was there, there wasn't mental models for business operators or entrepreneurs, and you could try to, to, to correlate them, but it, your writing was just much clearer there and really summed them up. Let's even start back a little bit earlier. How do you define a cognitive tool or a mental model? Yeah, so I, I, to me, a cognitive tool or a mental model is a mental representation of how something in the world works. And so, and the way I like to think about it is mental models are for mental simulation. So we have this wonderful capability in our brains where we can, I think the, the example I use in, uh, in the personal MBA is imagine for a moment uh, jumping into the middle of an active volcano. You probably have a pretty strong mental representation of what that would look and feel like, as well as a very strong opinion of, is that a good idea to do or not to do? And the reason is because we have this our, our brains have this wonderful capability called mental simulation. We don't have to do things or experience things in the real world to figure out whether or not they're a good idea. We can just simulate or imagine what would happen if, fill in the blank, and our, our minds take pieces or relationships that we already have stored in our memory and piece together all of the relevant concepts and relationships to figure out in an imaginary sense what we expect to happen when we take some specific action. 
So that's a universal capability. It's one of the things that makes us human. It's one of the things we do uniquely well. And so there's an advantage associated with that. The more mental models you have in a wide variety of areas, the more situations you can imagine or simulate, even things that you haven't experienced before. And so, for example, um, we have mental models of driving the car or driving a car. Like we can, we can imagine when we step down on the rightmost pedal and we turn the wheel to the right, what the car is going to do given that series of actions. So in a business context, what we're trying to do is collect these mental models of what a business is, what it, what businesses do, how they work, the parts that are involved in the same way, like you can have a mental representation of a car as a system. Um, you, ha you have uh, an engine, you have wheels, you have axles, you have uh, a gas tank, you have a spark plug. You can understand all of the parts of the business and how they work together. So you say, okay, if we do this, what is the car going to do? We're trying to do the same thing for business. So if you're trying to start something from scratch, uh, what do you need? How do you make a business work? And so understanding how you create value, how you market, how you sell, how you deliver value, and how you analyze the finances of a business to figure out if it's, this is a sustainable thing, um, that helps you, turns out, turns that, that helps you do business a lot better than if you didn't have those mental representations in the first place. Does that, does that answer your question? Oh, no, no, that perfectly articulates it. I mean, I, I almost view it, it's, it's like scaffolding in a building and you have those broad structures and then you're able to hang more things on top of them. And this, this might even be somewhat of an abstract question, but I'd just be curious to get your thoughts. I mean, you've been studying these now for decades. How deep and nuanced does your thinking go across all facets of life? Because I'm assuming you see these continual principles throughout all different things, not just business, correct? Yes, it, it, it applies to everything. Or it's amazing how many how many ideas that nominally apply to business um, have excellent crossover potential when when you're looking into uh, personal decisions, um, running experiments. I mean, a, a good tangible example for me, and I've I've talked about this uh, throughout the throughout the years. Um, one of the things that I didn't expect was that um, I had a, a mystery health condition pop up a couple of years ago. And um, I never expected that it was my business research that would help me after, after doing a bunch of things, trying a bunch of things, collecting information, uh, doing experiments. It was that thinking that I learned in the process of, of getting better at business that helped me get to the solutions to resolve that crisis. I mean, this, this, this applies at, at all different levels and it's, it's, useful regardless of who you are, what you do, or, or what you've decided to, to work for in your, in your life. These, these are universal tools in the grandest sense. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more and largely due to your work and some others work that, yeah, it's, it's been able to be applied uh, in my own life outside of business entirely. So I'm, I'm completely on board with you there. It's funny, I love getting to the crux of people. And you even mentioned just being out of school and you're looking for this guidebook. So I mean, were you always just like that self motivated and driven to discover more about business? I'm just curious about like your activation energy around that. Not business, really. Um, but but definite curiosity about how the world works has has always been a driving factor in my life um and and i think in in the the really broad sense uh of that i've i've always been interesting in reading um i've always been interested in in a wide variety of subjects so actually for for a while i thought i was going to be a lawyer um so i wanted to understand about how like law and society and politics worked, went really deep on that. Um, for a while, I thought I was going to be an engineer. And so hard sciences and that's, you can see the, the systems and process uh, part of the personal MBA uh, definitely came from, from that, that study and focus. And, and business came, um, it was a real realization that business A is core to our society. I mean, it's, it's amazing the number of things, really important societal glue that businesses are. Um, 
everything around you right now has been started or created by some type of business, like literally everything. Um, so, so when it was, when I was looking at how do I want to spend my life? What do I want to invest my time and energy into? Um, business is one of the most simple in a sense, like simple in the way that you can think about like what businesses are and what they do. There's just this constrained set of ways businesses operate, but they're also in the actual, in the practical implementation, one of the most complex and multidisciplinary parts of life. I mean, you, you pull in hard sciences, psychology, uh, societal or, or political processes, um, interpersonal interactions. I, I mean, you get, it, it's everything. It is it's the point where everything comes together. And so to me, once I, once I started learning more about business and how important it is and how important it is to do well, um, I, I decided that, yeah, this, this is something that is a topic deserving of going really deep into. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. The, the number of, of broad life themes that this ties in and pulls on, you mentioned psychology. I mean, of, of course, you need some systems design thinking. For you, out of all those broad categories, what do you get the most excited about when you're researching or going to be writing about? I think it's actually the psychology part of it which seems a little weird. I, so, so one of the, the things that I, I've heard, so the personal MBA is, is turning 10 uh, as a book uh, and the project existed five years prior to that. So I've, I've been working on this for 15 years. And so some of the early feedback that I got about the personal MBA uh, were from folks who had more of a business background. They said, you know, all this stuff, you know, the marketing and the sales and the finance, like that's, that's all great. Why do you start talking about psychology here? Because that just seems to be some like a completely different, different subject. Like why blend them? And I, I could never, I could never understand that because businesses are created by people, run by people for the benefit of other people. And so, if you don't have a working understanding of of how people work, how they think, how they make decisions, how they communicate with each other how they interact with each other, uh, you're going to be at a, at a substantial disadvantage uh, uh, compared to somebody who does know how that works. And, and B, you're going to have a lot more issues, practical day-to-day -day issues with, with things like hiring, working on, uh, with, with other people on teams, um, even just managing your own day-to-day -day work and psychology. It's going to be way more difficult if you don't have a good understanding of how people work. So when you first got interested in, in psychology, mental models, building this out, I, I'm wondering how you go from idea to, you know what, I'm actually going to take the time to write this book because you just mentioned it was a five-year journey. I would love to know what that looked like initially. Yeah. So the, the early incarnation of the personal MBA was as a very personal project. I was just doing this for me. Um, I started the, I think it was the, the March of my last year of college, really seriously sitting down and, and doing, um, I wouldn't call it systematic research at that point. It was more like, I'm, I'm just going to read a bunch of business books and, and see what I learn. Um, I really enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it and I kept doing it. And I, I kept, I reading was effectively a second full-time job for, for a good five years there. And that was just collecting information and, and trying to do the synthesis of, of my own. Um, what's important? What are the themes? Um, if, if you read enough business books, what you'll find is the same ideas come up over and over and over again. And, um, you know, so a lot of business books are, are around one big idea, but then even in the background of those ideas, you'll see the same things uh, keep popping up. And so I was a couple hundred books in to this project and, and really started to realize that, you know, there, there's, there's a core here and there's a core of things that other people aren't talking about. These ideas that keep coming up over and over again, those are the important ones. Those are the ones we should learn first, because, you know, as you, as you mentioned with, with the analogy of the scaffold, that becomes the scaffold by which you can hang other things off of. Yeah. It gives, it gives you a way of kind of 
hooking in or giving you an approach to even novel situations that you've never seen before. It's like, oh, that reminds me of this. And then it, it helps you figure out the rest of it. And so um, I started, I, I was a couple of years into the project and then finally started trying to outline um, in the first real way what this would look like as a set. So under, under the mental models theory that there are really only 20 to 30 ideas in each of these discrete topics that carry most of the weight, my goal for myself was to figure out what are what is that small set in each of these areas that is most valuable. And so I didn't know what I was going to do with it. Um, it was, uh, I was, I was at this point writing it at personalmba.com. And so I figured, yeah, I'll, I'll write about it there. Maybe some, someday I'll, I'll make a course or, you know, teach it or, or whatever. And um, I really, as I, I wrote more and more about this, um, more and people started being interested <laughs> in it. And, um, and so the, this was at the time where um, early websites blog, the, the, the heyday of blogging, right? People were, were starting them, people were reading them. Um, and so I just, I started to take this, this research that I was doing for me and put it into a format that other people could A, read and, and B, give me feedback on. And uh, by this point, I was living in New York City, and I happened to meet at a uh, at an event uh, a man by the name of Adrian Zackheim, who is the the publisher of the business imprint of Penguin USA. Um, and and so I'm, I'm talking to Adrian, and and he goes, "Have you ever thought about writing a book?" And honestly, up until that point, I had I had not. And, and so um, it's like, this, this might be interesting. So um, the way the book came about is after meeting Adrian that afternoon, I, uh, <laughs> I, I went home and I wrote one of the longest emails that I've ever written in, in my life. Um, just imagining like what this could look like. And I didn't have any experience with the publishing industry. I didn't know that what I was doing was basically writing a, a book proposal. Yeah. And so I, I sent this to Adrian. Uh, he got back to me the next morning and he said, I'd like to introduce you to David Moldauer, one of our editors. Um, and, and I think the two of you should sit down and take a look at what this, what this might be. And, uh, and that's, that's how the personal MBA as a book uh, came to be. And then 15 years later, it's funny. I, I didn't plan on asking this at all, but I'm just even wondering around the serendipity. I mean, right? Like what, yeah. what were the chances of that? I'm wondering how you've identified serendipity at other points in your life or luck. Yeah, I, I think there's there's an element of luck and preparation that I think goes into into all this. So so now you know having having a decade's worth of experience, you know, writing and in publishing and and doing all of these things, I was pretty ideally positioned to write a book on this specific topic. That wasn't my goal going in, and I didn't know it at the time. It took somebody else to realize that. Um, but looking back, all of the pieces fell, it was a beautiful game of Tetris. All of the pieces fell into the right place at the right time um, with the right people in, in a way that worked out really well for, for everyone involved. Um, I think that had I not done the early research or had this very personal, meaningful project going on for five years, that very much would not have been the case. And so, you know, I, I, I think there's an element of your knowledge, your skill, your life experience, all of that accumulates. And then there can be instances in the world where you happen to be the key that fits this very convoluted lock. Um, and, you, and the key and the lock come together at, at exactly the same time. So yeah, the, the world is a uh, is wonderful and and there are opportunities everywhere and there are things that you can do um through your your effort your skills your interests to maximize the probability that at some point in your life you're going to come across a situation that you are the perfect solution for yeah life's really fun when you haven't have that key that's uh 
the, the perfect fit for that lock. So you mentioned even just reading hundreds of books. I, I can only imagine the number of biographies or just examples of, of great titans of business and leaders across all of them. I, I know you've mentioned that business can even be simple. So, so what mm -hmm. is it about them? What is it about some of these leaders like a Munger or a Rockefeller that's able to create so much? Yeah, I, I think, and, and I should preface this, like a lot of my reading and research is very much tied to how to. Like I'm looking for people who are teaching about how to do marketing, teaching about how to do sales. Um, so, so for me, I've read hundreds of business books. Biographies are by far the smallest okay. version of this. Um, so that said as a preface, I think that the things that excellent business leaders are able and willing to do is take a look at a, a business situation and say, these are the parts of this that are extremely important. And we're going to pay an enormous amount of attention to them. We're going to invest here. We're going to focus all of, all of our productive capability towards this small set of things that matter. And people who end up being ineffective business leaders get distracted by lots of different things. Um, sometimes it's by focusing on things that really aren't important. Um, you can see this in like CEOs of large companies that create a bajillion products and, and the focus of the organization is just spread all over the place trying to do 500 things at once instead of doing two or three, two, two or three things really well. Um, so that's definitely a factor. Um, I see a lot of people get caught up in making bad decisions for status reasons. Um, so social status is one of those things in human psychology that is A, fascinating because it affects everything, but B, really has a deep impact um, on our personal decision-making, sometimes in great ways and sometimes in not so great ways. And so the classic example from an entrepreneurship standpoint is I want to start a business so I need to make a logo and I need to make fancy business cards because that is the thing that's going to determine my success or failure exactly. in this venture. <laughs> um, we see it all the time. And, and there's it, part of that is natural because we want to look good in front of other people. Um, in many senses, starting a business or becoming an entrepreneur, which is a more statusy identity way of saying start, starting a business, right? Um, it feels like stepping into a new role and there's a social communication aspect of wanting other people to know that we're now doing this thing and that we take it seriously and we intend to do it well. But when you focus too much on those considerations, you tend to start making some in the moment, not so great decisions, expensive decisions, costly decisions from, from an energy or capacity standpoint in the effort of, of looking good in front of other people. Um, so think like the CEO who, who acquires another business, not because the business is a wonderful fit for whatever their, their current company happens to be doing, but because it looks good to other CEOs that they're acquiring these, this big business and they've doubled their headcount. Like, no, that, that is that is not the path to success. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think being able to take a step back, both from a, a cognitive standpoint, understanding what's important and what's not, but then also an emotional standpoint of feeling, even being able to recognize certain feelings that may be distractions instead of benefits. Or, or maybe complications that are unnecessary um, is something that separates people who end up being really good at business from people who end up being mediocre or actively terrible. Yeah, that uncanny ability to, to zoom in, zoom out, to, to figure out the signal there from the noise. I, I'm wondering as an author, an entrepreneur yourself, a business leader, how recently have you seen yourself falling into this trap? Does that at all happen to you? Every single day. <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it, we we are we are human beings. Um, one of the things that I talk about early on in in the human mind section of the personal MBA is that our biology is ancient, 
and our modern context is very new. And so things that served us well to keep us alive, to find us food, to find us mates, to, to keep us functioning and existing in the world, um, in a modern context, not so great, um, or, or can be applied in ways that don't get us what we want, ultimately. Um, a good example of this is social media. So the human brain has a built-in preference for novelty. Novel not novelty attracts our attention. Uh, it sustains our attention. So if you, if you have to pay attention to the same thing uh, that doesn't change over and over and over for hours and hours and hours, your brain's going to have a really difficult time doing that. But if there's a new post that goes up on Twitter every five milliseconds and they never run out, there's an unlimited source of novelty that our brains really just aren't well equipped uh, to manage. And, and so I think a big thing that I have learned um, in learning more about, uh, about this subject is being A, clear that there are some ways that I need to manage myself to make it more likely I'm going to do the things I've decided are good and beneficial and also make it less likely that I'm not going to do those things. Um, a good example of, is that for, for me, when I sit down seriously to write, I block the internet. Yeah. I have to, because the moment I get stuck or I get to a hard passage or there's something I need to figure out, my brain's gonna go into screensaver mode and I'm gonna pop up a browser and I'm going to go to Hacker News or, or Twitter or something like something that is novel and interesting and easy instead of the difficult, valuable thing that I've decided is more important than all of that stuff. And so, yeah, there's, there's a certain amount of understanding how you work, altering the structure of the environment around you to make it easier to do things that are long-term beneficial and harder to do long-term things that are destructive. Um, yeah, and, and then there's, there's also, you know, in, in the grand sense of, um, of career and, and going back to our status conversation. Um, I think it's fair to say that that authoring is a relatively high status thing. Like people think well of authors and that's great. Um, there are also parts of being an author that are have higher status than others. So for example, um, being on the New York Times bestseller list is usually you know the gold standard author gold star, yay, you're awesome, that's great. Um, there are things that you can do to make it more likely that you will get that particular status signal. And some of those things, not all of them, but some of them, um, in my opinion, actually make for worse books and worse, less valuable writing. Um, so for me, one of the things that I, I think in this this grand in the grand scheme of of the personal MBA as a project, I decided very early to not focus on those things, and as a result, the personal MBA has never hit the New York Times bestseller list. However, the personal MBA has sold nine hundred thousand copies worldwide, and continues to, and I think that's because I chose to optimize for the long-term valuable important thing and to ignore the shorter term emotional gold star that in the long run wasn't going to make as much of a difference. Does that make sense? Oh no, it makes perfect sense. And uh, many of the listeners know, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate of playing the long-term games. Even if short-term, you might miss out on some of those early signals, but no, that, that, that really resonates and I identify completely with that. I, I am wondering though, just about early on, I mean, it, it's, it's obvious, you're a voracious learner. And I wanna know like that early learning curve for you, how did you speed that up? Yeah, uh, uh, so so a couple of different things. Um, I think in, in terms of learning, it's important to make a, a, a distinction. When we talk about learning, we usually think about it in the sense of like getting better at stuff where stuff is kind of this big amorphous blob of improvement. 
and I like to think about it in a couple of ways. So learning is based on knowledge. So under conceptual figuring out or, or having a more accurate picture of, of how the world around you works. Skill is the ability to do something in the world that has a specific desired end result. Okay. And the way that you acquire knowledge and the way that you acquire skill, two very different things um, with, with different processes associated with them. So the personal MBA was a knowledge project. Yeah. So let, let's let's read all the books, put them all in my brain, figure out what's important, try to, to codify it or systematize it as much as I can. Uh, that's that's good. Um, my second book was the was a desire to figure out what the skill acquisition part of that picture looked like. So so that became my second book called The First Twenty Hours, um, which was a book about how to go through the skill acquisition process as quickly, effectively, and efficiently as you can. And so um, there's, as you might expect, there's there's some overlap, right? Like pay attention to the things that will, will actually make a difference in your performance of the skill. Ignore all the things that won't. Um, actually sit down and do the practice. And then it, before that, taking a step back and figuring out what is it exactly that you want to be able to do? What does that look like? do you have an accurate mental representation of what skill looks and feels like from the inside? And then how can you practice in a way? Um, so avoiding all of the psychological pitfalls in, in terms of thinking about practicing, wanting to practice, intending to practice, not actually sitting down and practicing. Um, so on the behavioral psychology side, how can you get yourself to sit down and do the work do the practice to acquire the skill, um, but then also get to the point where you are able to look at your performance as you're practicing and self-correct, because that's the part of the process where you start to see very rapid improvement. Uh, you're, you're, you know what you should be doing, you try it, it doesn't work, but you're able to figure out based on what you're seeing why it's probably not working and you change your approach and you try it again. And once you get into that loop, acquiring skills becomes much, much faster and much, much easier. Yeah, Josh, I would love, do you even have a specific example of either yourself or someone else building in a feedback loop like that? Yeah, a, a good. so um, the first 20 hours is organized in, in kind of two main parts. So the first part is, here's the theory, here's what's... <laughs> Cognitive and behavioral psychology research says about how we how can we uh, learn things quickly, and then the back half of the book is all case studies of me learning to do completely brand new to me things that I have never done before, and testing the model to make sure it it works. Spoiler: it works. Works really well. Um, so a good example of this is um, I learned how to touch type using a completely different keyboard. Um, which I wanted to do for a couple of different reasons. A, I type a lot. So having a more efficient keyboard layout, better on your hands, good long-term thing for me. The other thing I wanted to do is have an example of relearning to do something you already know how to do in a different context hmm. and try to remove one skill and replace it with another. And so um, think of like a, a typing training program so um, that has words or letters appear on a screen, you're trying to type them and you get the immediate feedback of, nope, type that one wrong. Hit the delete button, go back, do it again. And the more times you repeat this process, that instantaneous feedback loop is extremely valuable. Um, another good example from music. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier before the show. Uh, I, have, I have two kids, uh, one is nine and, and one is six. And they're both learning how to play the piano, um, which has been really fun. It's been fascinating to see, like af after doing all of this, this research about skill acquisition and doing it for me, seeing them go through this process and notice what works for them and what's not working so well. And one of the things that has wor worked really well is we use a program that emphasizes listening to the music that they're going to be practicing or they're going to be playing well in advance of ever playing it. Hmm. 
And so you have a, at the time, back in the day, there were CDs, now it's MP3 downloads, but um, you, you have them listen to this over, over and over again, usually you know, at night as they're getting ready to bed, as they're falling asleep, things like that. And you would think it's like, it's not some voodoo, the music is soaking into their brain. Like, no, that's not how it works. The reason that's important is when they're sitting at the piano practicing and they play a wrong note, they know the, wrong, the note is wrong immediately and can correct it right there because they know what it's supposed to sound like. And so just having that step of, of speeding up that feedback loop, having instantaneous knowledge, nope, not quite right, I'm gonna do it this way, oh yeah, that's better, and then they go on from there. Enormously valuable. Um, versus you know, the skill acquisition equivalent of stumbling around in the dark without a flashlight, like you're going to bump into all of the walls and furniture. You just, you don't have a, you don't have a choice. Like knowing what you're trying to do and being able to self-correct, once you get to that step, everything is easier from there. I always love hearing about skill acquisition and then even what you were referring to earlier about like that, that broad knowledge acquisition. It's always so interesting to, to see the different components and, and ways people adapt them and incorporate them. And you mentioned before, those reoccurring themes keep happening, which I mean, that's one of the reasons your work so so helpful uh, in so many ways. I would love to know as, as you're revisiting the personal MBA after 10 years, what was that process like kind of going back through and, and uncovering things that needed to be updated and things to add? How is that as an author? Interesting. <laughs> uh, probably the best way I could put it. So I, I was, I was really glad to have the opportunity. Um, partly because, so I, I wrote very specifically the personal MBA to be as evergreen as I could make it from the very first edition. Like that was a, an explicit goal of the book. I want people to be able to read this, 50, 60 years from now, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, and it should still be relevant. It should still be accurate. So taking a look 10 years later, I'm happy to say that that was mostly the case. Um, there were a good example of some things I needed to update. I think there was a mention in the, the first two editions, because the second edition came out in 2012. Um, Netflix was still mailing DVDs back and forth in the mail. Like, Ooh, I, I need to update that one. So, you know, some, some of what you would expect, like, uh, references becoming dated, some examples being, being really good. Um, good example, like, um, I think Netflix is a, a good example of, um, a shared resource type of business, mm -hmm. which I talk about in the value creation chapter and, and a good it's, it's always interesting writing about business. You're trying to find examples that are, are perfect representations of the concept that you're trying to get across, but then are also ubiquitous enough that everybody has some experience or knowledge about what they are. So you don't have to like waste a lot of words in, in background or explaining around it. But then they also have to be unique enough to be interesting and novel and, and maintain the reader's attention. So there's, there's an interesting type rope that, that happens there. Um, so part of it was was updating examples. Um, part of it was removing things, a couple of things. Um, I'm sure you've heard of the the replication crisis in psychology, where all of these studies from the past few decades, when researchers go back to try the study again, to make sure with uh, modern statistical methods, if those studies actually say what they say, or if if what they're representing is actually true. Uh, turns out, no, um, not uh, many, many studies for, for various reasons um, don't hold up under intense scrutiny. So one of the things that I wanted to do with this edition was go back to some of the, the cognitive and behavioral psychology uh, that I reference and make sure that, yes, what, I, what is in the, the book is, is indeed, you know, to the best of our psychological knowledge right now, uh, accurate and true. And so for the, for the most part, uh, really good grade on that. I think there were two concepts that I took out or substantially refactored based on uh, the, the most recent knowledge and experience we have. Um, the third thing is there are, I added a few concepts that should have been in the first edition, 
but for whatever reason, I didn't put them there. Um, so a good, good example of that is in uh, marketing. So the one of the oldest and most effective marketing techniques that exists is demonstration. Showing something working, showing something producing a particular result. Um, this, this goes back to the dawn of human civilization. And for some reason, I don't know why, it was not on my list of things that I included in the marketing section of the book. And so it was, it was really nice to have a chance with the benefit of time and distance and experience to go back and look at the entire book as a whole and say, okay, what are, what are the things that I want to change? What are the things I want to add? Um, what are the things that I can refactor in a way that might be more clear or more useful? So the, the examination of social status, um, I took it out of one section and I broke it apart into a couple of different concepts. And then I included those in a different way to make the introduction and application a little bit more clear and useful to the reader. And so, um, yeah, it was a good example or a, a good opportunity to go back and, and take take a comprehensive look at everything. And I'm I'm a different writer than I was a decade ago. Yeah. And, and so I probably removed 5,000 adverbs that were completely <laughs> unnecessary. And, uh, but, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing, like, I think when you're a beginning writer, I, I, I don't know if this is true for everybody, but at least for me, there's a way that things sound in my mind when I'm writing. And my impulse was to embellish or emphasize to make sure that the person on the other end who is reading this, it sounds the same in their head as it, it sounds in mine. And so, you know, italicizing things and adverbs and, uh, and try, trying to, trying to, to, to communicate exactly how I think or feel about something. I just kind of went over the top in a lot of different areas. So, so the new edition is, is a nice way of, of, of just paring down, making it clear, making it simple, making it straightforward and, and just easy to read is, is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, no, it's always fun for me when I'm preparing for these conversations, getting back and, and dive deep on the books. Um, so I, I had the old, the, the original edition was getting just to, to compare. And I mean, I really respect you for, for even being able to, to step back and analyze yourself, right? I mean, it's almost what we were talking about earlier. You, you never understand the system you're in while you're currently in it. So it's like when you, when you're 30, you look back and what was I doing? When I was 20, same thing when you're 40, looking back at 30 thinking, what were you doing? Uh, so it's really cool to hear that. Uh, I'm wondering though, as you were preparing and, and getting ready for the book, did you have, and I don't necessarily like this word, but an epiphany moment of, oh my gosh, this is a new concept or business structure I haven't come across before. Was there anything like that you came across? I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think the, the, closest things and, and I think in they they more fall into the territory of could have or, or should have been in the first two editions that I just now had the opportunity to add um, so there's a lot about experimentation so um, exploitation um, versus experimentation um, some things in the systems category so I included a pretty comprehensive um, examination of externalities so what they are why they're important um, and then a little bit more on the personal management side um, and, and around the ideas of status. So um, status, social status, status signalings, um, quality signals, which is kind of how status overlaps with what you can build into an offer or a product to make it more attractive or beneficial to a customer. So yeah, it's there, there was no... Um, even taking the, the the big like large step back, is there something really that I'm missing? Um, I was really pleasantly surprised of of how much of the manuscript I didn't need to change, which it's I mean it's it's a huge book, so I was I was very happy that I didn't have to substantially rewrite the entire thing. <laughs> I'm curious now, like at this stage in your career, what what are you just most intrigued at? What what are you nerding out out on the weekends and books picking up uh, with particular topics? Yeah, um, 
I have always been a big reader of philosophy and I am, re I, I find myself reading more and more of that. Um, there are two books that I always come, come back to um, in that vein, uh, which is the, the Art of Worldly Wisdom by Balthazar Gracian and um, The Waste Books by George Christoph Lichtenberg. Um, I love those two books. And, and I think what I love about them is, aside from the content, which is interesting and perceptive, um, two, two very smart and connected people in their respective centuries. I think it's 16th and 17th century, respectively. But you get the sense of like a very smart, driven person looking at the world around them and trying to make sense of it and do whatever it is that they, they do better. Like I, I love, 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 love those, those kinds of books. Um, yeah, what's, what's really interesting for me is, is for the first time in my career, now, now that this is done, I'm giving myself permission to take a good, very, like, very distant step back in terms of career and choosing what the next project um, looks like. And so, you know, usually, which is kind of weird, like I'm a researcher and a working author. So the question should be, what book is I, am I going to write next? Um, I'm, I'm deliberately choosing to not do that right now. So, um, so I'm doing a lot of reading and research and experimentation in all sorts of different areas. One of the, the most valuable things that I learned in the process of, of researching and writing the first 20 hours was uh, computer programming. And so I now have, let's see, that book came out in 2013. And so I was doing the research in late 2011, early 2012. Like I have, I have eight years of programming ex experience now that I didn't have when I started the personal MBA. Uh, there's a lot that I can do with that. Yeah. Um, there is my, my, my most recent example, and, and this, this is probably more of an insight into personality than anything else. Um, I, I, so to, to release the new version of, of the personal MBA, um, I needed to re-record the audiobook because my voice is different than it was 10 years ago. You can't just like record the new versions and mix it all together. It doesn't work that way. You have to re-record the whole thing. And I went, Pro honestly, probably too deep about, you know, doing research into microphones and preamps and audio engineering and mastering. And like, there's this whole fascinating world about how sound works um, that for the past couple months, in addition to having this responsibility of re-recording <laughs> the audiobook, I learned about this whole new fascinating world of technology that, that I didn't have a whole lot of experience with, which I, I just personally find super engaging, super fun. Um, I love finding a, a rabbit hole. Uh, my, <laughs> my editor, uh, David Moldauer, who actually um, I, I continue to work with. So David was my editor of the first edition of the Personal MBA when it came out. And I have continued to work with David and he has edited my work. Um, hmm. In addition to my, my wonderful edit, editors at Penguin, um, he got to weigh in on the new edition too, which is great. But David jokes that uh, when I write a memoir or you know retrospective of of my career, it's it's going to be titled "Down the Rabbit Hole" because that's just it's just what I do. <laughs> you and me both believe me that completely identifies. Uh, I'm I'm really curious. You just mentioned a lot about your your reading and your research. What does your actual research and reading process look like when you're opening a book? It, it, I'm just wondering if there's any takeaways we can have about things you do just to distill that knowledge down and retain it. Yeah, the, the two things that I can recommend the most, um, and this is this is specifically about reading nonfiction. Um, this does not apply to fiction in any way, shape or form. Um, first, do a preview of the book. And so before you, you know, page one, sentence one, word one, and go through linearly, um, take 10 or 15 minutes and flip through the whole thing. And so, and there are a couple of things that you want to do while you're doing that. So it's mostly asking yourself questions like, what is this? Why am I reading it? What exactly am I looking for? Um, who is the author? Um, what are the substantial arguments of this book? Like what are, what are the main themes? What are the things that keep coming up over and over? 
what does the author appear to be saying? You just, in the same way that we were talking about like having a mental representation of things makes things easier, having a mental representation of the book as a whole before you start reading it through cover to cover is a really valuable thing. And I, I think not enough people take advantage of that. It really is only like five, 10, 15 minutes of sitting down and reviewing the entire book before you, you dive in really deep. You end up being able to go through the entire work faster. You remember more of it. Um, if there are sections that seem to be more relevant to why you're reading it in the first place, you can focus more time and attention there because you know that they exist and you know where they are. Um, there's no downside. So just previewing a book before you read it, super valuable. I don't typically, unless it's a passage that I want to make sure that I pull out and quote and save for later word for word, I don't typically take notes while I'm reading, but I take a detailed summary of the most important points of the book when I'm done or when I'm, when I'm done with a reading session. And so um, most books, given a couple hours, I can go through the entire work and I'll just take, a, I'm, I'm a, a pen and notebook person in, in this regard. I'll just take two pages of a notebook and write down the key ideas, mental models, concepts, standout examples, things that really stuck with me as being particularly relevant or useful or applicable to something that I'm working on. And I'll just write those down in a notebook. And the reason to do that, I think is, is twofold. Um, first is it really, it helps you solidify for yourself in your own mind, what are the important ideas that, that stood out to me? And not copying them down from the book, but rephrasing them and putting them into your own words is a really important act of synthesis that kind of makes those ideas stick in a way that they otherwise wouldn't. I think the, the other thing is that these ideas, you know, every, every book is kind of, you can read the same book multiple times and get something different every time that you go through it. Mm -hmm. I think doing, you can also do that with your notes as you go back and have multiple readings of a book and you can see, you can see like the things that are applicable to this book to me now are way, way, way different. Um, there's also the act of, and there's, there's very good um, research literature about this. Just the act of writing something down helps solidify um, concepts into long-term memory that otherwise wouldn't if, if you just read a book and then you put it back on the shelf and you forgot about it. And so that, for me, I get a lot more valuable, or more, I, I get a lot more value out of keeping my notes in, in time with the synthesis step. So not notating as I read, taking in the whole of it, sitting with it for a while, and then writing down what's important or valuable to me. Yeah, you're actually encapsulating how the brain actually works and how we learn best. So yeah, there's going to be a tutorial on, on the actual way you should be reading. Uh, you just laid that out purposely or per perfectly as opposed to just underlining where we think we're retaining it. Uh, it, it gets down to the synthesis process. Um, I, I am wondering, though, I mean, you're surrounded by so many people in your work and great examples. If you could sit down with, with anyone dead or alive and, and you'd just be having an interview for hours with them, who do you think you'd select to interview? Charlie Munger, yeah. for sure. No, absolutely no question. And and a lot of that, now that I've, so part of the reason I did this in the first place was uh, I was really hoping Charlie had put together this, like everything you need to know about business in order to succeed. Um, and he, like the closest he got was, was a few speeches and then a few essays in like, biographies that were published about him. Um, but his conception of everything you need to know to, in order to succeed in business didn't exist. So that was part of the impulse um, to make my own. Now that I have, in retrospect, I'm really curious about if he were to do such a thing, what he would include in it and how they might be similar and how they might be different. 
Um, I think that would be a, a, a fascinating conversation. No, that certainly would. You guys could sit down, compare the notes throughout the evening. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so say someone's going to go out there, they're going to pick up the personal NBA. Uh, I, I've been a fan of it for, for a number of years, so I was really excited when you came out with the 10th anniversary here. Uh, I'm wondering for someone who's like, hey, I, I have a general idea on, on models, system archetypes, business as a whole. What are they going to walk away with? What are you really hoping they get out of this? Yeah, so the personal MBA is is designed no matter who you are, where you work, what market you operate in, what industry you operate in, or whatever crazy business idea you have in your head that you would like to see happen. Um, the ideas in the personal MBA are designed to be applicable to your situation. So, um, and, and, and particularly valuable to people who have no business background whatsoever. So a, lo a lot of business books kind of assume a basic level of understanding or experience doing the things that are in the book. Um, I really try to you know, think of the alien analogy, like somebody who has no experience with this in any way, shape or form, like what are the things that you need to know in order to, to operate well in this area? And so the book is structured into three parts. Part one is business, part two is people, part three is systems. Um, business, we talk about the five core parts of every business, like what makes a business a business, how it all comes together into something that operates well. Um, so we talk about creating something valuable, uh, marketing, sales, value delivery, and finance. Um, in part two, we talk about people. So we talk about the human mind and how that works. Working with yourself. So how do you apply all of those ideas to get more done, have, have a more effective, happier, uh, more sustainable career, and then working with others. So how, what does leadership and management and communication and negotiation and all of these wonderful interpersonal aspects of the business, how do you do that well? Um, as well as um, given some of the more research, re recent research into uh, cognitive bias, how do we avoid making some of the most common mistakes that we know humans brain reliably and predictably make in certain circumstances? How, how can you be on the lookout for those areas, kind of the danger zones of, um, of pitfalls, things to avoid, things that you can have a better experience by not falling into the same hole that everybody predictably falls into in, in certain ways. And then systems is really about how to understand an operating business at a much larger scale. Um, to be able to pick apart, identify different parts, understand what's going on, be able to analyze how the system is operating while the system isn't operating, and then be able to improve parts of that system to get more of what you want and less of what you don't, as well as avoid changing the system in ways that are going to provoke unanticipated or unintended consequences that get you more of what you don't want. And, and so I, I think the goal of the book overall is that by the time you're done, you should have a collection of accurate, useful, simple, clear ideas about all of these important aspects of modern business practice. And so you'll be able to do two things. Um, one is that you'll be able to in an active business situation, you know, starting your own business or in a, in having a problem at work or trying to figure something out, you should be able to notice when, when there's something in your world that reminds you of something that you've read before. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, okay, this, this is a confirmation bias problem. I know what that is. I know what to do about it. Um, and if the level of detail that is in the personal MBA um, is helpful, but not comprehensive in terms of what you're trying to do in this particular circumstance, you should know exactly where to go to get more information or knowledge or experience about it. So a good example uh, for entrepreneurs is market research. Super deep topic, many books written about it, very good ones. Um, I can only go into so much detail in the personal MBA. So you should know the basic high level overview of what market research is, how you do it, the types of questions that you ask, and how to get good data from research. And if you need to go deeper than that, here are three books that'll help you get uh, what you're needing. And you don't have to 
you don't have to do all the hard research yourself. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I love that. You, you, you always know a well-trained author uh, can articulate their book incredibly concisely, and, and that was awesome. And the listeners know cognitive biases, personal leadership, everything's just checking the boxes in, in terms of what I love. And what I really enjoyed there is you bring up when you are presented with these scenarios, it's almost like a little buzzer's going off in the back of your head that, oh, this is familiar. And I think that's what's been most helpful. Uh, so I really do appreciate that. Um, of course, we're going to have the book linked up everywhere they can get it. Anywhere else you want the listeners staying connected with you, anything you want them checking out? Yeah. So, so two places. Um, you can go to, if you want to get a preview of what's inside the personal MBA uh, in terms of concepts and structure, um, you can go to personalmba.com. Um, Everything is there. Feel free to, to poke around. Um, and I think if if you're a, a, um, a podcast listener, Audible is running a deal that if you sign up for Audible, you can get the personal MBA for free as a download. Um, so if that's interesting, you can you can definitely check that out. Um, in terms of my my personal research and um, new projects, the things that I'm poking around on, uh, my personal website is joshkaufman.net. And you can find um, essays, research, as well as links to my other two books, uh, The First 20 Hours and How to Fight a Hydra. Awesome. Well, Josh Kaufman, I cannot thank you enough. Congratulations on the 10th anniversary of the book. And thanks again for joining us on What Got You There. John, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.